With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode of Success How I Did It is brought to you by Chubb. Learn more at chubb.com slash bi. I'm Allison Chantel, and this is Success How I Did It. This week, we have Tim Ferriss. You probably know him as the author of The 4-Hour Workweek. And since then, he's become a podcast star with a show that approaches 200 million downloads. He's also an investor and a self-described human guinea pig. He sat down for a revealing interview with Business Insider's senior reporter, Rich Filoni. Here's Rich. Before we sat down to talk, Tim Ferriss popped a pill. Modafinil, he said. It's an narcolepsy drug, and yes, he has a prescription. This is typical Ferris, high intensity, experimenting on himself and pushing himself to his limits and then sharing his experience. But 2017 hasn't been typical for him. He celebrated the 10th anniversary of the four hour work week and also decided to leave his most successful brand behind. And with Tools of Titans, retired the jersey of four hour. And, you know, who knows? Maybe it comes back at some point, but probably not. He's out with a new book called Tribe of Mentors, where he collects advice from 140 successful people. And he told us that the project was as much for him as it was for his audience. Ferris has spent the last year thinking a lot about his own life. He lost some friends. He got a lot of attention for talking about his struggle with depression. And on top of that, he just turned 40. Turning 40 didn't, as a number, scare me or throw me off at all. I'm very comfortable being 40, but as a thought exercise, you know, I asked myself, you know, if this is the halfway point, if, if we're just looking at the actuarial tables, it's like, all right, if, if I'm at 50%, right, I'm halfway through this race called life. And when I hit the finish line, you're dead at 80. How might I want to rethink trajectory? How might I want to rethink over planning versus under planning? Even though I'm trying to improve relationships with others, are they dependent on my relationship with myself? If so, how should I even conceptualize improving that, right? If it's never been part of my repertoire. And all these questions came to the surface. And uh, rather than try to go it on my own, which has been my predisposition and my reflex for decades, I figured, why don't I just take these questions and given the reach of the podcast and the books and everything else at this point, why don't I just reach out to 130 or 140 people and ask them all the same questions? People who are the best at what they do in many, many dozens of different fields and then just try to borrow. Why not do this the potentially easier way? It seems an extension of kind of what you've done the past 10 years, even beginning with the four-hour work week, which is kind of dabbling in, in a bunch of different things and seeing what works and then sharing that with an audience. 
Yeah, it's exactly the same. I mean, really, I view my my job more almost as a as a field biologist or uh, anthropologist, where I'm collecting practices, I'm collecting techniques, then testing them on myself, and if I can replicate results and then share those with say six to twelve friends, and they are able to replicate results, then fantastic. Then off to thousands or millions of people it goes. And did this constant love of uh, learning anything and everything, did that start as a kid? Yeah, I would say it started as a kid. I mean, my, my parents, I think, did a great job of raising me and my brother, very supportive parents, did not have a lot of money. We can't get you the new bike, but we always have a budget for books. So if you want to get a book, we'll figure out a way to get the book. So what does that do to a child brain? It makes you excited to figure out ways to get books. And uh, so we became fascinated at a very early age with books. And I remember to this day, I did this book called Fishes of the World, I think it was, that I carried with me, this huge hardcover. I mean, I was a little runt. I was a really small kid growing up. And it was this gigantic hardcover, beautifully illustrated book on marine biology. And I, I took it with me to school every day because the playground was not a safe place for me. I was born premature. I was really small and got my ass kicked mercilessly up until about sixth grade. So I wouldn't go out to the playground. That was, that was a danger zone. I would stay by the classroom and kind of sit on the step leading out to the playground and I would read this book. And was being a small kid, someone picked on for his size, was that an impetus for getting involved in like body experiments as you say like you're a human guinea pig is that when it started no, I, it, I, it wasn't a deliberate decision to try to become captain america or anything i was really small and uh, had a lot of health issues growing up i mean uh, not compared to some people certainly but i had a number of full body blood transfusions when i was a kid uh, premature so you can actually this is audio most likely so people can't see it but you, if you if you look here rich on my wrist it looks like a cigarette burn on my wrist and that's actually from being intubated and then i have another one under my left lung where my lung collapsed and my blood was being oxygenated nonetheless so all these various issues and to make my parents lives more difficult really hyperactive and some other mothers told my mom you should put him into something called kitty wrestling because that'll drain his batteries, and then when he gets home, he'll just fall asleep. Wrestling is unique among the sports because it's weight class-based, so you could have the puny runt from class A competing against the puny runt from class B. So it's, it's, an, it's a situation in which one of the puny runts can actually win at something. And I took to it, and that became my sport until the very end of high school, effectively. So the the confidence built on the wrestling mat as a puny little god knows like 40 pound kid uh, is is where a lot of it started i've seen you downplay your time in high school like your time as a student and all of that but you ended up at princeton which doesn't just happen by accident yeah yeah i mean i uh, my brother and i were always told maybe not in these words but if you got really good grades you could do whatever you wanted in life in effect like that's your ticket and I transferred from a high school on Long Island to a high school in New Hampshire, which was a much better school called St. Paul's. Very well known. It's one of the older boarding schools in the U.S. 
Dead Poet Society. It very feels like Dead Poet Society. So you'd have seated meal, seated dinners a few nights a week with suit and tie, and classes six days a week, chapel almost every day of the week, mandatory sports. And uh, I was encouraged to go there or to at least leave high school on Long Island by teachers who could see me getting complacent. Like, all right, you think you think you're pretty good because you're a big fish in a small pond, but you need to you should go somewhere else. Number one. And then one of my one of my friends, just one of my classmates, because very few people left where I grew up in Long Island. I mean rel- relatively few people. And one of my friends had gone to a boarding school and came back and <laughs> effectively was like, I've seen the promised land. <laughs> you need to get the hell out of here. And so I was able to get support from my grandparents and kind of extended family. I got a few small scholarships and go to St. Paul's. And St. Paul's really set the stage for everything else and opened the door or the even the possibility of thinking about applying to a place like Princeton. At Princeton, you studied uh, East Asian studies and you took a break as well. Well, I took a year away from school, which was in the middle of my senior year. It was a very, very dark, dark, dark time for me uh, due to a bunch of uh, just a conflagration of all sorts of heavy things hitting me at the same time. And that is when I came close to sort of the precipice of total self-destruction. And I, I don't want to belabor that here because I've spoken about it at TED and people can certainly just search <laughs> Tim Su- Tim Ferriss Suicide TED and it'll pop right up. I was sitting in the back of my used minivan in a campus parking lot when I decided that I was going to commit suicide. And I went from deciding to a full-blown planning very quickly. During that time, I saw my classmates competing because that's what they were good at. I mean, you take kids who go to a school like Princeton, they're used to competing and they are used to being number one. So if something seems coveted, they will compete for it whether or not they really want that thing. And in this case, the thing would be, say, a job at McKinsey or a job at Goldman Sachs. And everyone was competing for these. And I ended up realizing very clearly I did not want to do either of those things. And I felt very lost. So during that year off, I tried all sorts of things. I spent six months in China, mainland China, and then went to Taiwan and just fell in love with Taiwan. So I I had this dream of opening a gym chain (laughs) in Taiwan and went pretty far down the line of trying to figure out all the details, this, that, and the other thing, meeting with gym owners. And ultimately, you had to interact with like paying protection money and so on to like triads or organized crime. And it just got so involved. I was like, all right, you know what? This is a little above my pay grade. Don't think I can handle this. Uh, Yeah, so I came back and ultimately rejoined school, graduated a year later, so not with my friends. My friends had already, Most of my friends had already graduated and uh, walked away with an illustrious degree in East Asian studies. In the foundation of your career over the last 10 years was the four-hour work week. And key to that coming together was, part of it was your experience with Brain Quicken, the first company that you started. And I mean, so it's a young guy and he's selling supplements out of his house. That uh, sounds a little sketchy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. What's your question? Yeah. <laughs> I've seen you refer to it as yeah. like a you refer you jokingly refer to yourself as like a, a drug dealer or something like you know in fairness i was i was actually neuroscience before east asian studies and had some of the wherewithal to 
to <laughs> determine what might make a good product because as someone making you know forty thousand dollars pre-tax in Silicon Valley in those days with roommates and uh, a hand-me-down minivan uh, did not have a whole lot of disposable income but nonetheless was spending a, an absurdly high percentage of my take-home income on sports nutrition I was like all right well I have some idea of the pain points and needs of this market. I know what I would want to create if I had the budget for myself, and which would, in effect, be what we ended up labeling a, a neural accelerator. Brain Quicken was a real learning-on-the-job MBA. I mean, it was very, very difficult. So the four-hour work week comes out in 2007. It, it seemed like no one really expected that to be a success, including yourself, right? Like a massive success. Nobody expected it. I mean, it had an initial print run of like 10,000 copies, which isn't even partial national distribution. So for those who don't know, the 4-Hour Work Week, which by the way, was initially titled Drug Dealing for Fun and Profit, is a collection of tactics and tools and case studies of people who have designed ideal lifestyles for themselves by thinking about this non-renewable resource of time and how they want to spend their day-to-day, week-to-week, and then reverse engineering that by building a business, a cash flow, or a career that allows for remote work and so on. So that's that's the four-hour work week. Those are the basics. But nobody expected it to do anything. And it led to this four-hour brand, essentially. The four-hour yeah, body, the four-hour chef. Very accidental, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... I've seen you lately kind of be self-deprecating about it, be like, oh, this makes me sound like an infomercial guy or something. Do you actually regret the title? No. Do you have changed no, no, it? No, 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 definitely not. No, I don't regret it at all. But, uh, you know, there comes a point where you know, all good things must come to an end. And in the beginning, you want to be pigeonholed in a sense. You want to be clearly defined in the very beginning. But past that point, you want to, I think, diversify your identity so you don't become a parrot who regurgitates the same party lines over and over again. So uh, in the beginning, four hour this, four hour that, fantastic. But right after the four hour work week, I was heavily advised by many people that I should do the three hour work week or the four hour work week revisited or something along those lines I felt if I didn't do something that was a complete left turn in a different field, I would forever be thought of as the four-hour workweek business guy, uh, which is why I took the same approach and applied it to physical performance and sort of physical manipulation. And then with Tools of Titans, retired the jersey of four-hour. And, you know, who knows? Maybe it comes back at some point, but probably not. After the break, Tim Ferriss talks about getting into tech investing, becoming a surprise podcast celebrity, and why he hopes no one considers him a role model. 40 million people in Mexico do not have access to the internet. Our company, Altanredes, is building a network that will connect them to the world. Chap wrote insurance policies that gave the Mexican government, our investors, and partners the confidence they needed to make this happen. They also cover our construction risk, damage to the network, and environmental exposure. For a project this complex, Chubb was the one. Learn more at chubb.com slash bi. At what point did investing enter the picture? Because, so you, you had a public post that you 
essentially retired from it in 2015. But I mean, you you had deals that most any like one of them people would kill for Uber, Facebook, Twitter. How did those happen? Yeah, I've had a fortunate run. So for instance, in the case of angel investing in 2007, four hour work week suddenly pops and suddenly it's number one New York Times bestseller and so on. I'm not so naive to think that I can just put lightning in a bottle and do that over and over and over and over again. I I thought to myself, well, if this is really my moment, like the opportunity window, what might I do with this? And around the same time, I was having lunches with uh, Mike Maples. And Mike Maples is? So Mike Maples at the time was a very successful angel investor, meaning he invested his own money in generally small-ish checks into very, very early stage embryonic startups. He's now uh, a founding partner of Floodgate, uh, which is a successful venture capital firm. And at the time, we would meet up for lunch or brunch at a place called Hobie's in the Bay Area. And we would very frequently talk about launch strategy or PR angles that his startups could use. In return, I would ask him about deal structure about company selection. Why did you choose this company instead of A, B, or C companies? Uh, What are the most important points in deal negotiation for, say, a seed round of financing? And over the span of a few months of asking him these questions, I had decided that rather than go to Stanford Business School, what if I took $120,000 of my money, which I would have spent on Stanford Business School for two years at the time, like 60 and 60, and instead created a real-world MBA for myself where I create the Tim Ferriss Fund in quotation marks and invest $120,000 in startups over two years with the expectation that I'm going to lose all of that money. In other words, every startup will fail. But the relationships develop, that I develop and the skills that I develop, the knowledge that I acquire will more than make up for that over time. So I asked Mike if I could co-invest with him in a few deals and that's how it started. And you had a good run. I had a good run. The first one was not a good run. The first investment I made, I won't mention the name, but invested, uh, keep in mind, I'm, I'm looking at 120K over two years, right? It's the first investment I want to say I put in, it's so stupid. I put in 50K in the very first investment <laughs> because I got so excited. This is one of the risks of being an angel investor who's a former entrepreneur is you can sometimes get very easily excited. And Mike's, I remember Mike saying to me, don't you think 50K might be a little aggressive? <laughs> Given my allegation for the year, it's supposed to be 60. And I was like, oh man, but no, based on your description, based on this, this, and this, no, I'm so bullish. And it promptly just went sideways and became walking dead. Over time, as I started to learn, all right, well, now that I've overspent my budget, I need to figure out also how to become an advisor. And an advisor for those who don't know, really just means that I am acting as a consigliere or or consultant slash advisor. And instead of getting paid in cash, I get paid in equity. I get paid in a portion of the company over time. And uh, so that 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 then led to some very good decisions. And I had I had very lucky timing also because two thousand say eight two thousand nine there was there was less capital in the startup game. And that allowed me to invest in some great companies. And like you mentioned, some of them, I mean, the the Facebooks and Twitters and being an early advisor to Uber and then later Alibaba. And I was the first advisor to Shopify, which had eight employees at the time and now has 2,500 or 3,000 and it's a publicly traded company. 
and so on and so forth. So ultimately, the portfolio ended up being, I want to say, 60 or 70 companies currently. So Tim, you've had a, a few books at this point, but whenever I mention your name to someone now, what typically comes up is the podcast. And this is something that you started a few years ago. The way you put it, it almost seems like it came up as a, a lark type of thing. Oh, um, it did. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not just the way I put it. Totally did. Totally how how did. did that happen? Well, after The 4-Hour Chef, which was a very complex book, I was very burned out and wanted to take a break from anything that was writing-focused. And I was... Interviewed at the time on the on Joe Rogan's show, Mark Marin, WTF, Nerdist with Chris Hardwick, which has since exploded into its own industry unto itself. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it because I could be myself. I could curse if it came out from Long Island and all. And there was there was very little censoring, A, and B, the format was long enough that I could get into the details. I could dig into the nuances and I didn't have to try to encapsulate everything about a 600 page book into 20 seconds of scripted time when the person I'm talking to is reading a teleprompter over my shoulder. And in those interviews, I had so much fun, number one. And then number two, they moved a lot of books. I was blown away by how many books really? these podcasts moved. It just, it completely made my jaw drop compared to a lot of other media. And I committed to six episodes to start. I felt like that would give me a certain critical mass where I could develop new skills, maybe re remove a few verbal tics, and uh, decide, assess fairly whether I enjoyed it or not. So I committed to six episodes. First one was a softball with my buddy Kevin Rose. Didn't even have a name for the podcast at that point. And... Uh, we got, or I got, I should say, I'm trying to use the royal we, but it was me. I got sloppy drunk because I was nervous. I was really nervous to interview one of my best friends, partially because he was busting my balls the whole time. And after six episodes, I decided to keep doing it. I was having a lot of fun. And now 300 episodes or so later, I'm still going. And it's uh, become, like you mentioned, what almost anyone who comes up to me in the street mentions. I've noticed in your podcast, it seems to be a common thing that you interview people across all kinds of industries. You even have some maybe experimental episodes where you're talking about things like your morning routine or things like that. When I look at the last 10 years or so of your career, it seems that you, this is a common theme that you jump around among things. Do you get bored with stuff easily? Oh, I would say I get bored with things easily, but the, the jumping around is also a protective mechanism. And so, so much like I had mentioned diversifying my identity with content by going from four hour work week to four hour body, even though I'm still, I still had interest in the business stuff, but I wanted to establish the precedent of me exploring different subject areas with the same framework. The insertion of experimental episodes into the podcast, say the Drunk Dial episode, would be a good example. Justin, this is Tim Ferriss. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm f***ing fantastic. I'm having uh, some <laughs> Bar Hill vodka and uh, playing with my puppy and making some phone calls, and you're my first phone call. So I decide, all right, what would this look like if it were easy? Well, I would put out a note on social. I'd say, hey, guys, fill out this Google form. Give me your phone number or Skype handle, and I'm just going to sit down with some gin and soda, and 
I'm going to start drinking and then I'm going to call the first 15 people or 20 people and you can ask me anything you want. And that's going to be a podcast episode. <laughs> so it self-selects for an audience who's up for that type of experimentation. I've heard you call yourself a, a dilettante before, someone yeah. dabbling in a bunch of different things. And what what is it that you specialize in? I specialize in pattern recognition and accelerated learning. So taking a subject that seems very complex or that can be presented in a very complex way and distilling it down to the fewest number of moving pieces that really matter. So the 20% that get you 80% of the results that you want and then imparting that to other people. So with that perspective, you've built up a good amount of success over the last 10 years. But something that I find interesting about you is that more so than a lot of even entrepreneurs in tech, that you're really open about your failures, um, whether that was being turned down by publishers or your TV show being dropped or just a wide variety of things. Is that deliberate on your part? Is that as much for you as it is for your audience? It's very deliberate. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it's for me because it's painful. <laughs> well, maybe coming no, to terms with no, the pain. No, I mean, it's not really a cathartic exercise <laughs> for me. I, I suppose it has that effect. But I talk about my failures because I think it's dishonest to only talk about your successes. It's so critical that people realize mistakes are part of the game. You know, unforced errors are part of the game. And as soon as that becomes the norm or the expectation, people can persist when they inevitably flub or drop the ball. I've had a bunch of what people would consider failures in TV, in books, in uh, any domain that I've participated in. I've made huge mistakes, massive errors of judgment. Nonetheless, if you focus on acquiring skills and relationships, acquiring, developing skills and relationships. If that's your focus, over time, you will win. Do you see yourself as a role model at this point? I, mm, no, I mean, role model is, I, I wouldn't call myself a role model. I would call myself a, a teacher, certainly. Uh, I think there are certain toolkits that I've acquired or approaches that I've tested that people can emulate, certainly, and use to replicate results. I mean, that's what I do. But I wouldn't anticipate nor really want anyone to look at me and say, I want to be Tim Ferriss. No, that's that's that shouldn't be the goal. And trust me, I mean, I talk about a lot of my demons like I don't I don't think you want to sign up for that necessarily. I want to be the teacher who makes his students better than he was. I want to give people the tools and say, OK, look, I made this shitty little birdhouse that people seem to be impressed by. But like you can go build you know, a gothic cathedral, if you want, with the same set of tools, right? <laughs> it's a bit of an exaggeration, but you get the idea. And then send people on their way to have their own adventures. Well, thank you so much, Tim. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You'll find interviews there with people like PayPal CEO Dan Shulman and the former CIA director John Brennan. And please leave us a review. It really helps new listeners find the show. I'm Allison Chantel. We'll be back next week with more success. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.